It's episode 162 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And in commemoration of that, here's the show. Hello and welcome to The Film File. Yes, it's The Film Show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. And I am your resident film geek, Lee Ford. And I'm that other one. Andy Meakin. Yeah, I've got to tell you this quick story before we start. <laughs> I know we said before the show we'll go to, uh, we'll keep it uh, really short. Yes. Because uh, we've got so much news to get through. So I was on stage a few months back uh, doing a gig and I do an introduction to all the band and I forgot the guitarist's name <laughs> and I did that. So uh, on lead guitar, we've got uh, Andy Wordsworth and on the second guitar, we've got that guy. <laughs> He kind of just looked at me and went, why don't I get an introduction? Got a big laugh from the audience, but he was not too happy. <laughs> that guy. And now, of course, I've got that in my head. That guy is, is sort of, uh, um, uh, it sort of works. Anyway, how are you, Andy? I'm good. I mean, I've, I, I think I've eaten a bit too much chocolate this morning. Oh, have you? We're recording this on Easter Sunday for everyone out there. So I've woken up and I've not had breakfast. I've just had chocolate. And my stomach's kind of saying, you shouldn't have done that, mate. You really shouldn't have done Ooh. that. So uh, if I have to disappear halfway through the show, good luck in hosting <laughs> it on your own because uh, yeah. I'll be locked away in a room somewhere. <laughs> Having a chock attack. But it's, uh, I mean, with the kids being off school as well. I mean, my kids are more or less grown up now, but they're still like sixth form college or GCSE age or in, in uni. So I generally get the days to myself. But with them not doing anything, I've not got the days to myself. And the wife's wife works at a school as well. So she's off as well. So I've got no time to chill out. It's just the house is full and my niece is visiting. So it's it's just everywhere. I mean, with my niece visiting as well, I got over from work the other day and my niece and my daughter had taken over the living room to do a live stream on TikTok. Oh, right. Uh, so I couldn't even chill out and relax and catch up with TV shows. But I did take advantage of the situation because I went into the kitchen and some of their Eloise's dress-up gear was in there. So I put one of her wide-brimmed, floppy black hats on and, I, and put it on at a slight angle and went in and started, like, dancing behind them on the live stream. At which point, someone <laughs> on the live stream commented, like, is that boy George? And I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I'll take that. I, th I think I'll accept that one. When I took the hat off, someone commented that I looked like the bloke from Breaking Bad. I was like, well, yeah, I've been saying that for ages. And then, best of all, I left the room, and then a minute later, my niece came through and said, one of them said, your dad's quite hot. I was just like, you know what? It took me 50 years to get to this point, but I'll take that. <laughs> yes, it's a win. It's a win. It only took me 50 years for someone to think, you're quite hot for a dad. <laughs> <laughs> As I said uh, last week, or the week before, something being about being called uh, an ugly Jude Law. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that's a win. Was it an insult? Was it a compliment? Can't be sure, but I'll Who take knows? it anyway. I'll take anything. Yeah, I'll go for it. <laughs> so, yes, it's Easter. Yeah. I, and I've got the opposite. I've got the house to myself. Oh, and I've I'm coming so down to the yours. last couple of oh, days. I'm stopping the recording. Yeah, I'm coming down do. now. <laughs> We're recording face to face. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's great. What, what can I do? Um, and I'll get round to this in the neat thing is uh, I've just played video games. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll load my PlayStation uh, 5 up and I'll come round now. <laughs> head on over. It's a free house. Aside from that, when I have caught up with TV show, generally it's been okay. One of them's going to make my neat things this week. But Mandalorian this week was a bit disappointing, wasn't it? I've not watched it mm. because uh, because the 
kiddo's not been here and I watch it with the kiddo, I I would have uh, I would have seen it normally on 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 its day of release. But I'm hearing and seeing bits of reviews that it is uh, is a bit odd. And we've got a lot of Star Wars news anyway yeah. to get through today. Surprisingly, I mean it's it's more surprising as well that. This week's episode was uh, directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, who every time that she's directed an episode, it's been really good. But this week's just felt... I mean, I'm fine with filler episodes. I'm fine with episodes of the week. Everyone needs to remember that the first season of Mandalorian was very much an episode of the week with just a slight Mm. story arc running through the whole series that took a while to get going. But this series seems to have started off with a story arc, resolved that within two episodes, and is meandering. And I'm I'm enjoying it. I can't, I'm, I'm with I can't you on see it so where far. it's going. Yeah, it hasn't got an arc that is has been defined yet. I don't know what the purpose of this season is. Yeah. Thought I did. I thought we knew exactly where it was going. It's been a little bit all over the place. Uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah. I mean, it feels a bit like, it feels more like Boba Fett, which has yes. a complete lack of direction. Maybe we'll get Boba Fett in for like three or four <laughs> and episodes. And everyone will get excited about Boba Fett being in it. <laughs> Yeah, it looked like it was going to be an interesting season with him wanting to redeem himself and like, you know, be rebathed in the waters and become a Mandalorian again. But that was just throwaway fodder in episode two. (laughs) It's like, well, that's done. What are you doing now? Or or the pirates, to be honest. I thought the pirates going to be the the big bad for this season. And uh, yeah, maybe retrospectively, we'll we'll see it as a work of genius. But right now, I'm I'm totally... And I don't like to diss anything. No. I was going to say I'm totally with you, but I don't like to diss anything when you're only a few episodes in because that might be the whole purpose, that it has some some quality that when you look at it in retrospect, you go, see what they were doing. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not excited for it, and I have been excited previously for The Mandalorian. And there's a quite, complete lack of surprise at the reaction from some of the more toxic incel fan base who are now blaming Kathleen Kennedy for Mandalorian being bad, even though they've been saying for the past two seasons the reason Mandalorian's so good is Kathleen Kennedy has nothing to do with it. But then as soon as it goes bad, <sighs> it's like, oh, Kathleen Kennedy needs to be sacked. It's like, but you said it was Filoni all along. You've said Filoni's got full creative control since day one, so who's responsible here? I know. Let's it's, let's not yeah. just not. Fandom is anyway so toxic, but we're not. We're not toxic. We're not. We're, this, fandom, this is we're the... geeks. We're immersed in this culture, but we take the positivity of it. We're the, that little corner, that little slice of heaven, uh, where you can come and feel as though you can express a point of view, and even if we disagree with you, it's your point of view. Yes, we're not going to take that away from you. Unless you say Paul Blart, more cops a good film, in which case you're banned. Okay. I don't think there are anybody ever, <laughs> ever, ever really joins that list. So we had a social challenge last week. What is the film that reminds you of the Easter holidays as we record this on Easter Sunday? Uh, hence uh, Andy's egg intake. <laughs> Sounds like some sort of uh, Mandalorian scene. <laughs> But how did we do? Did we get some nice responses? I'm, I'm interested to know what films do remind you of this This holiday? We didn't get a huge amount of responses this week. I'm not sure if uh, people don't... You know, we got this question because last week we spoke about Great Escape, which reminds me and Lee of the Easter time because it was always on TV. But it looks like that, that maybe it's the fact that we're moving into the age where people just watch things at leisure, that there's no particular yeah, thing that sits in your mind. So the ones who did respond seem to be the people of roundabout our age brackets. Shout out to Carl, who pretty much within minutes of the podcast going live on Spotify, responded to the Spotify question section of it through there. And his ones are, again, it's ones that you watched when it's 
when he was young. So Casper, Wallace and Gromit, okay. the wrong trousers always reminds him. Yeah, Wallace yeah, and Gromit, yeah, yeah. not necessarily yeah. the wrong trousers, but Wallace and Gromit as a whole reminds me of Easter yeah. because there's always a Wallace and Gromit on around then. And he doesn't know why, but he always ended up watching one of the Lethal Weapon movies because nothing says Easter like someone running around with guns and shooting people and kicking the hell out of people in the They're rain. saying, I'm too old for this shit. Yep, I'm too old for this eggs. That's that. That's the actual quote, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, on Twitter, the only person who responded was yourself. Oh, right. And I got it wrong, actually, because I was just thinking mainly of holidays and I put The Wizard of Oz, yeah. uh, so, which you said, oh, it's more of a Christmas film. So all of our Twitter So I'm readdressing there, the balance. I'm very disappointed in you all. Um, Ooh, you've all let me down. You've all moved over. Um, but... Because yeah, uh, a lot of the ones who used to be on Twitter have now migrated more or less over to Mastodon. So we did get Mevs Matz, who's a regular contributor to the questions, who uh, the Ten Commandments, even if he's never seen it. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. so I've not seen it and it reminds you of it. Simon M suggested the robe. Not seen the robe. Yeah, I've seen the robe. Uh, I said greatest story ever told last week, which is uh, yes. an amalgamate of many, many different actors all doing their bit for uh, Bible the Adaptation. John at UK Film Nerd suggested mole rats and posted a little image of the scene where they're beating up the Easter Bunny. And I completely get that. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Good uh, choice. And now I want to watch mole rats because I've not seen it for a few years. Margaret Sefton posted a video link to Peter Cottontail from 1971 and said, when oh, I was young, God. for sure. And I was just like, wow, that's a blast from the past, isn't it? The Peter Cottontail stop motion animation. As an adult. I don't remember that. Oh, search for it on YouTube and watch it. You might recognize it once you actually see it running. The adventure. Okay, yeah. yeah. The adventure of Peter Cottontail. Um, as an adult, though, Easter Bunny Kill Kill. We need more Easter Bunny movies for sure. <laughs> um, over on the old Facebook, my good old Mumsy replied to say April Love um, with Pat Boone. I've not seen it, so I've no, added, added, it, added it to my ever-expanding list of films to check out, and she's posted uh, the image of the poster for it. I'll get around to watching it. It's from 1957, so maybe uh, we'll tag, maybe we'll both watch it and tag it as a deep dive at some point. Yeah. John Dickinson, Critters 2. Right. <laughs> which, which, if you know John, you'll know that, you'll understand exactly that he will always gravitate towards some of the more obscure and more bizarre. He won't go for Critters 1 for Easter. No, Critters 2 is for Easter. Because a critter is, isn't just for Easter. It's for taking your life. I'm going to throw in uh, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory because I remember seeing that yeah. around Easter. Uh, I went to see it at the cinema. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also going to throw in Life of Brian. <laughs> and I'm going to throw it in because I had to do uh, some radio this week about the Life of Brian because it's 45 years yes. since that film came out unbelievable i remember going to see it i remember there not being much fuss at the cinema i went to but 45 years since uh life of brian came out and it still works it still works we watched it recently within the last 12 months and it's still phenomenally funny not my favorite python film that's holy grail yeah holy grails but boy it still works obviously with great great escape last week that was the top pick but also thinking about it films that remind me of easter general bond films because there's always been yeah. a bond film on tv sometimes too bbc and itv would go head to head with a different bond film one from moore one from connery that was you always had to decide who was your favorite bond and what was your favorite movie because it'd be like i can only watch one of them but i think the winner for me is ray harryhausen's um, say it, say it, say the big one. Jason and the Argonauts. Yes. Uh, Clash of the Titans as well, but Jason and the Argonauts is the one 
that always reminds me of Easter. It's got nothing to do it's with Easter, brilliant. but it was always on TV over Easter. It's just so memorable, especially that skeleton sword fight, which was Harryhausen's favorite yeah. scene that he ever composited. Oh, it's just perfection. And I'll, I'm going to be seeking it out when I finish this show today and watching it again, because I've not watched it in a few years. And now I really need to delve into some Harryhausen magic. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an awesome film. It really, really is. Okay, so this week's social challenge is we are deep diving this week a musical. So if you are introducing somebody to a musical for the very first time, what would you pick? What's your choice of your favorite all-time musical that you'd want to impress upon that friend who you, who's never seen a musical? It's an interesting one because I think it's going to I think this is one that all vary based on what your friend's normal genres that they're into are. You know, if someone likes horror, would you go for the jokey campness of Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yeah, I would always go for a classic and I would I would go for West Side Story because mm -hmm. I think it's still I can choose between both versions. And I think they're both equally as good for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say Rocky Horror Show would be in there. Yeah. I do love a good musical. So you tell us, what is your go-to musical that you would introduce to that friend who has probably... And shame a rock and never watched a musical. <laughs> Didn't know they existed. You know how to get in touch with us. We're on all of the socials. Let us know and we will read out the result next week. But what have we got for you for this week's show? Well, we are jam-packed like a filled Easter egg full of Smarties. There's one colour for everybody. Andy, what are you going to unwrap for our reviews this week? Well, uh, three new films this week. We've got the Mario Brothers movie. We've got Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre. And both me and Lee had the pleasure of sitting and watching Ben Affleck's latest entry. Uh, We're going to unwrap a deep dive, which is The Fiddler on the Roof. We've got chat, we've got gossip, and we've got another unwrapping, and that is the news and the box office. So we now know that Shazam, Fear of the Gods is dead in the water and John Wick 4 put him there. And just in time before Easter, we had the resurrection with Dungeons and Dragons. But is that still the top spot? So it's Super Mario has stolen everyone's hearts and stolen all the money at the box office this week in the US. It went straight in at the top spot, taking 146.4 million in its opening weekend. John Wick Chapter 2 is in second place, taking 14.5 million this weekend. Er is in third place with 14.5 million. Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves drops just over 60% to take fourth place, taking 13.9 million this weekend. And Scream 6 retaining its place in the top five with 3.4 million added to its total. In the UK, Super Mario Brothers in first place, taking 15.6 million. This weekend, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves drops to second place, taking 1.6 million. John Wick Chapter 4 in third place, another 1.2 million added to its total. Err in fourth place with 1.2 million. And Pope's Exorcist coming into fifth place with 707,000. Super Mario this weekend has taken a whopping 375 million, which has made it the biggest box office opening for an animated movie of all time. I think it's safe to say there'll be sequels, there'll be spin-offs, there'll be a franchise here. So the big news, and and, and perhaps I was uh, I was a little bit naive and missed missed the signs, 
But the big news was the Star Wars news, which kind of came out of nowhere for me. Well, it, this is the Star Wars celebration that we spoke about a few weeks yeah. ago when there was the rumours. Uh, well, the celebration's been taking place this weekend. And while there's been the expected news of, like, this TV series has been uh, commissioned for another series and uh, this animated series being recommissioned, the biggest news was in the reveal of how they're breaking down the different eras that um, Star Wars is going to be set in. So it's now separated off into Dawn of the Jedi, the Old Republic, the High Republic, Fall of the Jedi, which is the prequel era, Rise of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, the New Republic, Rise of the First Order, and the New Jedi Order. Uh, which, interestingly, some fans out there have got upset about them calling the prequel era Fall of the Jedi. It's like, but that was the area in which the Jedi fell from grace. Yeah. Uh, Did you not see the films? of the Jedi. What do you think happened to the younglings? But there were still some Jedis left by the end of it. It's like, yeah, but they were no longer the dominating presence in the, in the galaxy. What, did you miss this film? Well, they should have just called it the Clone Wars. Like, the Clone Wars was part of that era. The whole era is known as the Fall of the Jedi. The Clone Wars is one section of that. You can't argue with some fan bases. No, and you shouldn't, Andy. Don't, don't, don't take the bait. But in breaking them down... Kathleen Kennedy has basically said that the stories that we're going to tell going forwards could be from any of these eras and then revealed three of the projects that are confirmed to be going ahead into production as soon as possible. Now, we already know that Charmino Bayard's Chinoy's project uh, was rumoured and was in the pipeline. Yeah. We didn't know where that was going to be set. We've now had it confirmed that that film is going to be 15 years after Rise of the Skywalker, so it's the new Jedi Order. I will see Daisy Ridley return as Rey, rebuilding the Jedi Temple and the Jedi Order. So her film, as you said, is set in the era described as the new Jedi Order, uh, and will be all about establishing a bountiful new age of, of Force users in the wake of the Skywalker saga and the Jedis for the future. It's great to see Daisy Ridley come back because I think she was dealt a poor hand with Rise of Skywalker, which yeah. was disappointing. Uh, we, we can all say that quite easily. Uh, and I think it's fantastic that um, she gets a movie that's less about the legacy now and, and doing something that is about building up her character and giving her character an overall arc, what she needed to be. So I'm very excited for her. It's good to see her back. Uh, I'm waiting. I, I probably missed it, all the outrage from those kind of fans who don't like female-led Star Wars movies, but we're just going to ignore you. Of, of course, there's nothing outrage. We'll we'll get to the, the most hotly one last, because uh, let's just let, mention that Dave Filoni's one. Yeah, he's a Padawan, isn't he? He's George Lucas's Padawan. Yeah, Filoni's one... You could have kind of predicted that if he was going to make a film, that it what it would be set as. And it's going to be set during the same time frame as The Mandalorian, and it's going to draw on threads from the TV shows, because that's what he's heavily involved with. So he wants yeah. to play in that arena, and it makes sense. Now, my only concern at this is that we've then got a situation where people maybe have to watch all the TV shows in order to understand the film. Whereas I feel that the film should stand alone as their own thing without you having to watch yes. multiple seasons of Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, etc. But it remains to be seen exactly how it's going to draw from them. But then, the most exciting one. Yeah, and we shouldn't really be surprised because word is that Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is awesome. Mm -hmm. And we've got filmmaker James Mangold hopping into the Star Wars universe. And not just the Star Wars universe, he's going back to the very beginning. He's going back to the dawn of the Jedi 
and we'll be telling this tale of the very first Jedi. How excited are we? I, I, am, I am giddy like a crazy person. I am so excited <laughs> with this one. Mangold's such a great director. And he's playing in a part of the timeline that has only been hinted at, even in the extended materials of comics, etc. We've not seen this very first Jedi story played out. So he's got a lot of freedom to do what he wants. We will get to see the first the first discovery of what kyber crystals can do, which creates lightsabers. We'll get to see all of where this came from. I'm buzzing for this one. This is the one that I am so desperate, and I hope that it doesn't join the... the joining the wealth of projects that are sat on a shelf somewhere, which yeah. it's worth noting that Kennedy has uh, touched on the Ryan Johnson and Taika Waititi projects, because obviously they've been announced so many times, but nothing's ever come of them. Uh, with Taika Waititi's project, she said that it's more that a fact that he's quite busy. Um, he's doing a lot of things and he's a little slow, but he is working away. In her words, Taker is still working away. He's writing the script himself. He doesn't really want to bring others on onto that process, and I don't blame him. He's got a very, very unique voice, so we want to protect that, and that's what he's doing. But we're going to make that one day. So it's still not got an announced date. Taker's still playing with the idea. And with Ryan Johnson, Ryan and I talk all the time. He's unbelievably busy. So we're not actively involved in anything at the moment because he's doing another one of the Glass Onion movies and then God knows what else. But he really wants to step back into space. It's a big commitment of time, so that's really on him. So the ball's in his park. It's when he's finished doing his own projects for Netflix at the moment that he'll probably go, right, I'm ready to go back. But it sounds like she's got welcome in arms to just go, when you're ready, mate, we'll give you the money. You can make it. SWC 23, as, as fans call it, also gave us a new look at the Acolyte and Skeleton Crew. And Jude Law brought the trailer to London uh, and gave it its first reveal. And of course, we got that trailer for Ashoka as well. Yes, uh, there's been a lot. I mean, there's also Kathleen Kennedy's touched on the other shelf projects of Lando and Rogue Squadron, uh, which she said they've not been shelved. Most things haven't been shelved. Development is complicated and long term. For some people, we're dealing with scheduling because obviously really talented people are working on it. It's often not shelving. It's just, is it ready? And can we make it? Really what it all comes down to. Uh, specifically, she said that the Donald Glover-led Lando Calrissian series and Rogue Squadron are still in the works. The latter, Rogue Squadron, will probably look very different to what Patty Jenkins conceived it as because she conceived it as a film. Yeah. It's very possible that it'll end up being a series set in space or something like that. But all of these ones that has been speculated that there's nothing being heard of it's being cancelled. It's not. It's just that development can take a long time. And you have to remember, we now live in a world where people are hogging on online media and listening to clickbait articles and so desperate for anything to fail that as soon as something does get mentioned for two days, it's like, well, that's obviously been cancelled. No, even in the past, there was projects that took 15, 20 years to go to fruition. We just yeah. have to wait until everything's ready. Uh, and talking of ready, as it's ready to go again, Return of the Jedi is returning to theatres for its 40th anniversary. And that makes me feel 40th old. anniversary. <laughs> Please stop. Stop with all this anniversary stuff. It's there to depress me. Yep. In the US, it's going to be open for the full week, 28th of April through to the 4th of May. In the UK, it's planned only for the weekend, the 28th of April to the 1st of May. It might end up getting an extended one if it sells well. We don't know, but it'll be a great chance to catch it on the big screen again. It is more or less confirmed that it will be the special editions. We are not going to see those original editions in any way, shape or form going forwards at the looks of it. Uh, staying with James Mangold, that's... 
take a step to the left and head into the world of DC because James Mangold has announced that he is, is officially writing and directing the Swamp Thing movie. He is indeed. This has been speculated for a while that he'd be involved, but he was asked whilst at the Star Wars celebration, is it true? He's confirmed, said, yep, I'm going to be working on the Swamp Thing movie. And then James Gunn has publicly announced via his social feeds as like seems though seems though James has already revealed it let's uh, make this official yes we've been in talks for quite some time on this I'm very happy to have him on board his vision etc 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 great choice again can't wait and it shows that because loads of people are saying oh James Gunn's just gonna like get all the films like that he's in charge of are gonna feel like James Gunn films James Mangold can't be more different a director than James Gunn yeah. If you're worried that all of them are going to feel like jokey, flippant Guardians of the Galaxy kind of approach, you've got nothing to worry about. Swamp Thing should be really grounded. This is the guy who gave us Logan. Indeed. And talking of James Gunn, it has been mentioned and it seems as though it's now a thing that Peacemaker Season 2 is still going to happen, but it won't be out until after Superman Legacy. It's uh, going to be a bit of a delay, that, because Superman Legacy is 2025. Yeah. It's all up in the air. I mean, it's basically, we're not going to see any DC product by the looks of it next year. After this year plays out and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom releases, which that's had a release date change as well, worth noting, was due out after Christmas. It's now pushed itself to the December the 20th, which gives it that Christmas lead-in, which that is a sweet lead-in. Any film that releases yeah. that week, you're guaranteed a success. It also suggests that Warner Brothers anticipating the Ghostbusters sequel is going to move out of that slot because that's currently scheduled for the 20th of December, which will mean that Warners will own the 20th of December with both Aquaman of the Lost Kingdom and their own Willy Wonka film starring Timothy Chalamet. So it's going to be a packed Christmas. Something's yeah. going to shuffle. It seems strange that Warners want to put two of their properties head to head. Come on, Warners. Make it make sense. Move Wonka to Easter. It should be an Easter film. There you go. That answers our question of the week. Wonka is an Easter film. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, you've also got Illumination's next film, Migration, which is due in Christmas as well. And the first trailer landed for that just to keep on the dc one just to wrap up around dc you know with the having a gap year basically in 2024 it's a lot of discussions and speculations about what's going to come down the line with james gunn ones what we do know is frank grillo is going to be switching from marvel to dc and um, he played crossbones in the mcu but he felt disappointed in how little impact his character actually had in the in the stories in his words, they never told a story about Crossbones, the mythology of the MCU and just what Marvel has, has in its pool of characters. It's so deep. Crossbones was there for a minute, but he was supposed to be there longer, and then they went the direction they did. I think Crossbones serves a purpose, but I think the interesting thing is that if you see how many people around the world have responded to Crossbones, and again, he's on screen for a very short amount of time, I think there's more there. I think there was more meat to the bone. I was disappointed, which is why I've gone over to DC. Now, it's unknown what role he's going to have in DC, but the hottest expectation is that he'll be voicing one of the animated creature commandos. And as we know from when Gunn did his whole reveal, he said that voice cast for the animated shows will be also the actors chosen to play the live action versions. Right. So everyone's anticipating Rick Flagg Sr. Okay. Frank Grillo would have made a perfect The Punisher. He would. He would. I mean, I've got nothing against John Bernathal. Absolutely taking nothing yeah. away from it, but uh, Grillo would have been my fan casting. He feels he's he feels he's being done a dirty by Marvel, who like kind of introduced his character in an interesting way, but then didn't really use him, and he's just got sidelined very quickly. And what a waste of a great talent! So yeah. no wonder he he wants to jump ship to DC, where he feels that James Gunn's production will let him have some more meat on his bone. In other news, another casting news: 
I finally got round to watching X uh, because you recommended it. Yeah. And uh, while it's not my kind of horror, I thought it was very good. And I liked mm. the nostalgia feel of it. The it leans into the 70s, 70s gritty grind. Yeah. House. And you know, a huge fan of 70s filmmaking. And I, I really like that. It, it, it's, I thought it was good. Uh, and as you said, Maya Goff is a genius uh, actor uh, and she just stole every scene that she was in. But Ty West has confirmed casting for Max Ean, or Max Axax Ean, as I'm not quite sure how you're going to pronounce it, uh, which is the third part of his uh, X trilogy. And he has confirmed that uh, Giancarlo Esposito will be joining the cast and Elizabeth DeBecky. And not forgetting Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah, not forgetting Kevin Bacon. Rounds off the cast. So you've got Kevin Bacon, Giancarlo Esposito, Elizabeth DeBecky, Michelle Moynihan, Bobby Cannavale, Lily Collins, Moses Sumney. It's a heck of a cast. And award-winning artist Halsey, alongside, obviously, Mia Goth. Now, each of the films has had a different feel to them. X was very much a 70s Texas Chainsaw-inspired splatterhouse gore kind of film. Pearl was very much Wizard of Oz on drugs. And this one is going to tap into that 80s straight-to-VHS nostalgia aspect. The really dirty, grainy, dodgy horrors that we all had to like get from under the counter at the air. Uh, video shops oh, those were the days i'm interested to see it. i lo i love what ty west is doing i love that he's making each of the films feel different because he doesn't see the point in making the same film over and over again he wants to use the same characters to tell different different styles and different homages to different areas of horror that he's loved throughout the years yeah. or just into cinema in general sticking with horror we spoke about it before five nights at freddy's uh, the blumhouse productions chief jason blum has announced that the live action film adaptation of five nights at freddy's video game is going to arrive in cinemas for halloween this year okay, it will good. it will open on october the 27th with a wide release and in addition it will be going straight to streaming in the u.s on peacock on the same day and date now we know with horrors this can work because we know that horrors do have the audience that will still go to the cinema to see it, even though it's coming onto streaming at the same time. We've seen it happen over the past few years a few times. I think this is great because some people love to see horrors in the cinema and will go to see it. Some people love to sit at home, like curled up on the sofa with a loved one and watch it together. I was going to say with a cushion over your face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those who don't know Five Nights at Freddy's, the story follows a troubled security guard who's going to be played by, by Josh Hutcherson as he begins working at the family-friendly Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. Spending his first night on the job, he realises that on the night shift, um, it won't be so easy to control because the giant animatronic creatures turn deadly and can move when not looked at. Uh, Matthew Lillard, Piper Rubio, Elizabeth Lale, Mary Stuart Masterson, Lucas Grant, Cap Connor Sterling and Jessica Blackmore are all co-starring. Jim Henson's Creature Workshop are working alongside Blue Mouse on this. I'm interested in this. Yeah, I, I know very little about the game. Uh, the, the game, I mean, I've got the VR version on the PlayStation. And right. boy, it proper messes with you. Uh, but it's a very popular game series because think Blink on Doctor Who, how the angels don't move when you're watching them. It's that kind of approach. Right. So every okay. time that something's out of your sight, you're then stressing about whether it's behind you. Great little um, horror game franchise. So much potential for making a fun, fun-packed horror film. So another casting news, Michael Mann's Heat sequel is underway and Adam Driver is in talks to star. Isn't he in discussions to play the younger version of De Niro's character, Neil McCauley? Yes. From what I believe, that's exactly who he's supposed to be playing. This is a prequel to the original classic which starred Robert De Niro, Al Pacino and Val Kilmer 
and it was a powerhouse of a heist movie if you've not had a chance to see it yeah the story for heat 2 jumps between two time periods some of it is set very godfather part 2 yeah set before the events of heat and some is set after uh, the first part of it follows Val Kilmer's like character, Chris, as he tries to evade LAPD and Detective Vincent Hanna, Pacino's role in the original, following the events of the original film. But the second part of the film takes us back to Chicago in 1988, when Macaulay, Chris and their Highline crew took on scores on the West Coast, the US-Mexican border and now Chicago. Warners are in negotiations to fund the project development and as of right now, no partner is involved. New Regency co-financed the first film and have, have the first opportunity to co-finance. And Adam Driver in negotiations to star? Of course he is because he's just finished filming the Ferrari biopic with Man and Adam Driver's a great choice. Exciting news. Excite me, Andy. Excite me. We've been waiting, but it's finally going ahead. The third film in the Paddington franchise, called Paddington in Peru, is going to be happening. Filming is set for July the 24th this year. We called that some time back that, that yeah. there was a, a third film in discussion. Because we know that Paul King's not returning to direct. He's returned to story and script it. Paul King, Simon Farnsby and Mark Burton. But it's going to be music videos and commercials director Dougal Wilson making his feature debut taking over from Paul King. David Heyman and Rosie Allison will produce. The new film story is under wraps, but with the title Paddington in Peru, I'm going to hazard a guess that it's going to leave the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Expect to see Paddington getting into sticky situations in deepest, darkest Peru, which is where he originated from. So I get the feeling it's a finding your roots story for the character, the beloved character. And I cannot wait because those two films were just full of absolute charm. Surprise news this week. And this had me... Okay, surprise me now. You've excited me and now surprise me. We know that Disney is remaking all of its animated films one by one yeah. in live action. Uh, we mentioned last week about the Aristocats. Yeah, but I don't think anyone would have had it on their bingo card that they would go back as far as 2016 for Moana. No, because they've been tackling a lot of the subjects. Well, they, they did it with Lion King, but they've been tackling stuff which are on the edge of copyrights and that sort of thing. Yeah. But Moana, I mean, I, I know I know a teenage girl who still watches it weekly. I, I mean, I, I, I'd happily watch it weekly. It's a great film, but it's so fresh in the imagination that it, it just seems a bizarre choice to go for something that is still there now whether this is because what a surprise Dwayne the Rock Johnson is heavily involved in the production for it and it was him who revealed that they're going to be making a live action version so of course he's going to be playing his character of demigod Maui in this one and this feels purely like a the rock passion project that he just wants to play that role again but can't come up with an idea for a sequel so let's just remake what we've done before there's so many underappreciated adventures that Disney made in animated form. Treasure Planet, calling yep. it. Treasure Planet Treasure is Planet. top of my list. Atlantis. Uh, Atlantis is the second on my list, so uh, you're matching <laughs> me. That These are ones that never quite got an audience, but there's so much potential for a great live-action epic take on them. And yet, they're, they're delving into recent films that you can still find. But they still regularly get brought back to cinemas for family AM screenings. I mean, th these, are, these are not old films. We talked last week about the casting for Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. Which is, okay, 20 or so years ago. But it's still fresh. It's still fresh in sort of the public's mind because of, you know, the amount of times it's been shown in, in the cinemas and it's on Disney+. Plus. It doesn't feel like it's gone away. So it could either be successful, like Beauty and the Beast, 
an Aladdin or it could be a Mulan. Yeah, I think this might go the way of the Mulan because... Which does sound like a sequel, the way of the Mulan, doesn't it? <laughs> With the remake the sequel of the we never got. To, to live action, you get the feeling that it should be tapping into some kind of nostalgia, but you can't have something, you can't have nostalgia for something that was only half a decade ago. Yeah. Give me something like Fox and the Hound. Give me the Sword and the Stone. Give me the Black Cauldron. Yeah, I'm with you. If this is a success, no doubt we'll get a live action Frozen to follow it. And we don't need that. They just need to let it go. Sorry. Sticking with animation, here's something that I called that pretty much after I watched the new Puss in Boots movie, didn't I? They're going to make another Puss in Boots movie? Shrek. Yeah, I know. It was a case for me with the Shrek films. I think the first one is genius. It's classic. Diminishing returns for the rest of them. They they just didn't land for me. That freshness went out of it. They felt awkward. Uh, okay, I am guess nothing's ever dead nothing's ever dead i mean the the new puss in boots movie was much better than the last puss in boots movie and it showed that there's still life in that world yet with very creative animation and a really good dip into other characters from fairy tale lore but it was no doubt that with that being a success that the whole idea of the shrek franchise would be re-explored and uh, mike myers cameron diaz and eddie murphy are now officially in talks to return for a fifth film okay. uh, chris melandandry who runs illumination has confirmed in talking with Variety this week that the offers are out to the original voice cast saying we anticipate the cast coming back talks are starting now every indication that we've gotten is that there's tremendous enthusiasm on behalf of the actors to return Eddie Murphy has also commented back in January said that he'd love to do a Shrek movie so I think it's pretty safe to say that he's going to be signing that document as soon as it gets through to him and saying yes 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 please I don't know how to feel about it I did love Puss in Boots and I yeah. do see that they've got potential. I just hope that they're not just making it just to regurgitate the same humour. I hope that they've got a nice, fresh idea, like they did with Puss in Boots. Yeah. There's potential within that franchise. It could be good. It could just be, oh, this is where we're going. Uh, speaking of potential in the franchise, we mentioned a few months ago that Zaslav was talking about how the Fantastic Beasts isn't working, but they want to tap into the Potter universe because there's a huge franchise there. And I've said quite a few times over the years, it's been almost, it's been 20 years since the first Harry Potter film came out. Isn't it time for a reboot? And news came this week that HBO is close to a deal for a TV series based on the Harry Potter books, readapting so, each of the books. Oh, okay, so you've just answered my next question in advance. So they're going to readapt the yes. books rather than build around the books. Yep, it's uh, going to be each se season is planned to be one of the books. How do I feel about this? It was inevitable at some point. How do yeah. most people feel about this? How dare they remake this thing that we love? However, it is interesting to look online and see a split in the fan base because you can tell the people who've only ever loved the films to the people who loved the books before the films because the book lovers are quite excited about this because one of the criticisms that the book lovers have had since the very first film is how much was missing from the books on the film versions, whereas the film lovers never knew what was missing. They never noticed it. I'm more, I think this is a great idea because I said even back when back when the, like, the fifth film came out, I said there was so much chunks missing from it, I think that would have worked better as a series because they could have like filled in the gaps, they could have done this and made it flow better. And the latter films, the books that were adapted from were huge, and so they had to condense it quite significantly, yeah. and it lost some of the flow. So a TV series gives them a chance to do it. It's a reboot, yes. It's going to be recast, yes. I think it'd be a great bit of stunt casting if they get Daniel Radcliffe to come back and play Snape instead. That'll be a good bit of stunt casting. But I've got no problem with it because at the end of the day, 
if it's not good, you've still got the original films. Let this go through. You never know. You might have two versions of the same story that both stand up alongside each other pretty well and you get to enjoy even more of something you love. I'm looking forward to the Percy Jackson TV series because yes. apparently the films, and I've not read the books, I'm way out of my age range, but I, I thought the film was pretty good. But I know the author said they didn't reflect what the novels were yeah. about. So I, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what's brought to the TV series that the movies didn't get. Harry Potter, I was never just a huge fan. I, I understood and I admire the fact that they were huge and they took a lot of young people into the realms of reading and being excited about a series of books. But but it, they never landed for me. The, the child got into them uh, and started reading the books but preferred the movies. And I always remember those last two, which were uh, Harry Potter and the Camping Trip of Doom, yes. which was, was just dull as you waited for the conclusion. So uh, if if they appear... Then I'll give them a I'll give them a shot just to see what they're like. But I have very little in the way of interest. Um, sticking with HBO and the prequel series to Stephen King's It has now added four more people to the cast: Taylor Page from Zola, Jovan uh-huh. Adepo from Babylon, Chris Chalk from Gotham, and James Remar from Oppenheimer are all going to star in the series that is going by the title Welcome to Derry. It unfolds in Derry in the early 60s and will reportedly also go into the origins of Pennywise the Clown, which was teased at in It Chapter 2. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Could be interesting. It could be one season and cancelled. Yeah, I never saw um, Castle Rock series and it was disappointing that the Overlook never got uh, any further than uh, pre-production. I'm all for any exploration into Stephen King ideas and mythologies. So I'll be giving this a shot, see how it pans out. If it doesn't pan out, it's just another one to chalk up as missed opportunity. And Legendary has acquired the film and TV rights to the Street Fighter video game franchise. Oh, one of the worst video games to film adaptations ever. <laughs> I, I was going to try to joke and just say, oh, no, it's a classic, but I can't. I can't bring myself <laughs> to say not. that. Yeah, Capcom are going to be working with them on any future projects to do with it. The long-enduring video game series which gets a new version, Street Fighter VI, in June this year, began with a 1987's arcade game and had that awful 1994 big screen outing that Lee's referred yeah. to, which, <laughs> yes, it had the late, great Raul Julia in a very memorable final performance as M. Bison, but Jean-Claude Van Damme was just doing the splits like he does in everything. Yeah, Kylie Minogue was so completely out of place. It was not a good adaptation. Round about the same time, we got the video game adaptation of all time, Mortal Kombat. Street Fighter, it wasn't a patch on Mortal Kombat. At least Mortal Kombat knew what it was and lent into the game. Street Fighter as a film didn't. How they'll approach it with a new adaptation? Yeah, remains to be seen. And that's about it for the news. But we've got some sad passings this week, which kind of fell a little bit under the radar because there were more to do with the production side of this wonderful industry we call film. And firstly, uh, the sad passing of Norman Reynolds. Yes, Norman Reynolds uh, was a production designer on, let's be honest, I'm going to read out a few films here and you're going to go, oh, wow, hey, what? Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Empire of the Sun, Mission Impossible, Alien 3, Alive, Return to Oz. This guy's name was working on the production design behind the scenes in so many of our favourite films throughout the years. What he brought to all of these projects was detail, love, and something something to treasure when you're watching on screen. Passed away age 88 
it's a sad loss to see like such creatives from behind the scenes who don't kind of get put into the forefront but if you're like you know if you're as geekily immersed in film love as we are you'll recognize their names every time they pop up and you'll recognize aspects of their personality conveyed in what they bring to the productions so reynolds took over famously from john barry who was production designer on the first film not the composer and had a hand in the very first star wars film and they established a look that we're still with today. If you look at any of the Star Wars series, whether it's The Mandalorian, whether it's uh, the J.J. Abrahams movie, all of those elements that Reynolds and crew brought to Star Wars are still with us. And and that's the legacy of, of those productions designed. Absolutely awesome. And the second death this week is that of Bill Butler. Uh, Bill Butler, again, unless you know, was cinematographer on probably one of Andy and I's most favourite movies of all time. Uh, he was the cinematographer on Jaws. His work on Jaws, that very troubled production that ended up being such a perfect film through desperation more than anything else. Yeah, this is, a, this is a film that was falling apart at the seams, leaking mm. water, to use that analogy, and it was the crew uh, and, and Spielberg's vision that, that made it one of the most incredible films of our time. It went massively over budget, costing a grand total at the time of $3 million, which was uh, extended the original schedule to 159 days. Nevertheless, it's a phenomena. And part of that is not just Spielberg, but Bill Butler's cinematography on it, because he gave, he gave audiences a water level perspective. In fact, yeah. it would become the film's defining look and the fact that he used the rocking of the boat to help capture those sequences when the the, the crew were at sea that gave it this sense of realism and this mm. sense of belonging and it was the as we know jaws is the blueprint for the summer blockbuster film and bill butler's mastery on that film is one of the reasons that film works. It absolutely is a, a beautifully shot film. Handful of films that Butler worked on that stood out to me. We've got Grease, uh, one of the best musicals of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Stripes, which is a very underappreciated comedy that. But we love it over here at the we film file. Absolutely file. adore it. Rocky's Two to Four which everyone's got love for at least one of those films. Most people for number three, me more, number two. Yeah. Frailty, which again, a film that hardly Stunning anyone saw, film. and we, we will have to deep dive at some point. The Hot Shots Part 1, which was for a parody comedy. That looked amazing because it was parodying all those great-looking action films like your Top Guns, etc. Yeah. Child's Play. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we've spoken about on the show. Capricorn One, which is a, be a beloved sci-fi entry. Not a great film, but I've got a very strong fondness for it. Oh, me too. Omen Two as well. Uh, yeah, this guy's name was over a lot of films that I've got in my DVD and Blu-ray collection. And it's because he brought, he just brought a great style and a great vision and knew how to get the right, the right lighting, the right looks, the right shots, the right framing for whatever scene he was approaching, be it comedy, be it horror, be it action, be it adventure, be it sci-fi. The guy could bring his magic to everything. He survived by his wife and five daughters, and he was only five days away from his 102nd birthday. Oh, that's a shame. What a beautiful life he's had, and what a beautiful legacy he's left behind. Absolutely influential. And that, folks, is this week's The News. <laughs> 
So enjoying this particular episode of The Film File? I'm sure they are, Andy, because I'm enjoying this particular episode of The Film File. I'm always enjoying the episode of The Film File. And even when I come to edit it, I enjoy listening back to it multiple times as part of the edit. And I know that you always listen through afterwards. I do. Uh, because even though we're saying this, and we talk about the stuff that we're going to talk on the show in a general purpose, but we will never get tired of hearing it all. So if you're the same and you're not getting tired, well, you know what to do. And Lee's going to tell you exactly what to do now. You head over to your favourite podcast platform and you look for the film file. You hit that subscription button and you hit a like. Remember to leave comments and remember to get in touch with us because you can get in touch with us across all of the social platforms. If you want to send us an email, ask about favourite films you want us to deep dive, then do so. You want to make a comment about something we've spoken about, get in touch. If you just want to wish us good luck and happy birthdays, you can do that as well. Mine's in November and as you've just missed. But become part of the Film File family because you know what? We're that little corner of the podcast world which loves movies. And we love you to love the movies that we love. Sounds like there's a song in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that leads us nicely to this week's deep dive. This week's Deep Dive is from 1971. Star Topple, Paul Michael Glazer, Rosalind Harris, and it is Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition! Fiddler on the Roof. More than a musical, it is a timeless legend for all mankind. A glorious celebration of the human spirit. Fiddler on the Roof. A tradition. Fiddler on the Roof is a 1971 musical produced and directed by Norman Jewison from a screenplay by Joey Stein and it's based on the 1964 stage musical of the same name. It's set in the early 20th century in Imperial Russia. And the film centers on Teyev, played brilliantly by Topol, who won plaudits for his portrayal on the stage. He's a poor Jewish milkman who is faced with the challenge of marrying off his five daughters amidst the growing tensions in his shtetl. The cast includes Norma Crane, Leonard Frey, Molly Pickon, Paul Mann, Rosalind Harris, and he of future Starsky and Hutch fame, Paul Michael Glaser. The music score was adapted and conducted by the great John Williams. So when we come to talking about films, Andy and I will go into deep discussion about what films we're going to discuss. I gave him Lost Horizons, which he's still not forgiven me for. <laughs> and he has given me in return Fiddler on the Roof. Now, this is considered a classic in the way that Lost Horizon isn't. It was the highest grossing film of 1971. It was nominated for eight nominations at the 44th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and won three for Best Score Adaptation, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. And the film was nominated for Golden Globes as a musical comedy and Best Actor in a Motion Picture for Topple. But it's one of those films that I just cannot connect to. And, and I'm saying that in the fact that there's nothing wrong with it in any mm. stretch of the imagination. I have nothing against the film. It's just, I've just never connected with it. And that's just a, a personal thing. But I know you like it and you've rewatched it again. Yes. Now, this is one that I didn't watch 
when I was young. Even though my mum loves this I film. See, I did. Maybe that's it. I never watched it when I was a kid because it just didn't seem to appeal to me. I'd always like go off and play with my toys in my room, get my Transformers out and start, you know, having battles. Whereas like, you know, I'd happily sit with my mum and watch things like West Side Story or My Fair Lady, which is one of my favourite musicals. So I came to this very late. And when I say very late, I watched this for the first time only about five years ago. Okay. And fell in love with it there and then. Straight away, I was like, how has this stayed off my radar for so long? There's something about it. And rewatching it this week reminded me of exactly what it was about it that I loved. The first act hits straight off with great music. You've got the tradition starting off the like introduction. You've got Topol as Tevier, who's breaking the fourth wall to talk to you, but also using it as a way to his, in his communications with talking with his God asking about the trials that he seems to be getting put through because he's he's a devout follower he follows tradition and he's got full belief but he's constantly wondering why his god is constantly making his life suffer there are other people who suffer oh why why do you put us through these things and then you get to the you know the most well-known song from the whole thing which is if i were a rich man which is which... brilliantly done and, and and i have to point out even though i'm not a fan film. of the, the movie but topol is it's stunning throughout the film and that song is the classic it's on the playthrough of that song that when I first watched it, that was when I knew I was in. And it's because of Topol's bombastic delivery that really like sells it. And you just can't help but get caught up in that energy. And from that point onwards, I was completely on board and following this very personable story about a devout follower of Jewish tradition who's starting to see the, the modern world impeding on tradition and particularly through his relationships with his daughters and their relationships with other people. So one of his daughters grows a fondness for Paul Michael Glazer's revolutionary character who is breaking tradition and goes against what should have been a proposed marriage to someone in the village, which they've always done, um, arranged marriages. And that's the start of him having these personal struggles with how the modern world is changing around him. And in addition, you've towards the back half of the film, after it's got a lot of lightness and a lot of personal things, it then goes a bit broader and it really plays on the aspect of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine at the time and the annexing of Jewish communities, making it illegal for Jews to be found in certain townships and cityhoods. And it becomes more about the country changing around them, not just the people changing, the, the ideas changing, but the country itself is changing and how Tevye and his family and his community have to adapt to that as well solid story but each of the musical numbers again just absolutely lifts it and it is purely enjoyable because of topol who was interesting because the decision to cast topol came over that of of zero mostel as who'd created basically tf for the uh, american stage and made the role famous yeah jewison when he was looking at casting he wanted to stay away from mostel because he felt that mostel's own personality would overpower the film and he wanted it to be an almost unrecognized character now topol wasn't unrecognizable he'd been playing the say this character originally in the israeli production in 1966 before he eventually became the London West End version in the late 60s. So he was known, but only to a small audience. They considered other people. There was Danny Kaye, Frank Sinatra, Richard Burton, Orson Welles, and even Marlon Brando, who had all either expressed an interest in the role or were considered at some point. But Jewison had his eye firmly set on Topol, 
who Topol, being an Israeli, he, when he moved to the London production of it, he couldn't speak a word of English and he learned all of his lines phonetically. Awesome. It's worth noting as well. I need to just divert off just to talk about Norman Jewison. United Artists recruit, like hired him to direct it thinking he was Jewish simply because his name is Jewison. And his first <laughs> okay. words to executives upon meeting them was, you do know I'm not Jewish, right? <laughs> and I love that little bit of trivia that they literally just looked at someone's name and went, you must be a Jew because your name says Jewison. He, he does a great job of adapting the stage play. They changed some elements to make it cinematic. And in getting the look for the film, the cinematographer, Oswald Morris, who had been famous for shooting colour films in very unusual styles. Jewison asked him to make it an earthy tone, which resulted in him shooting everything with a woman's stockings over the lens in order to give it that sapia tone almost. Yeah, it's it's known as a cigar look, uh, which is that gives it that sort of brownie, edgy look to it and, and as a result it looks great as well as sounding great principal photography was done at pinewood studios in the uk uh, but all the exterior shots were done in yugoslavia and the constitution republic that we now know as croatia other elements of the cast were rosalind harris she was previously bet midler's understudy in the role during the original broadway production Asi Dayan, a well-known Israeli actor and filmmaker, was originally cast for the role of Perchik, but couldn't really handle the English dialogue and was replaced by Paul Michael Glaser. Richard Thomas was Jewison's choice to play Fideka, but he lost ultimately lost out to that part to Italian actor Ray Lovelock. And the film also has an appearance by Heidi Heiss, Ruth Paddock. As Fruma Sarah, the butcher's wife, in a great vision from beyond the grave sequence that is just so creative and fun. And it's it's it's, a, it's a, basically a sequence where Topol realises he needs to tell his wife that the arranged marriage to the butcher isn't going forward and so concocts this false dream that he's had from a, a vision from beyond the grave from the butcher's wife saying, no, this can't go through, he's supposed to love me, to make her go, well, they can't get married then. And it's brilliant. It's so fun. And this is what I like about it is it's... It's the playful aspect of Topol as Tevier, who's confronted with all these things, but always worried about his wife and how she's going to react to it. And all of his actions are all to do with how are other people going to perceive what I'm doing here. And there's some great humour. I realised this week how funny, particularly in the first act, a lot of the dialogue is. I always chuckle like crazy at this one. When the tailor gets the new sewing machine and everyone's round to see it and Tevye doesn't get a chance to see it, but he has an argument with his wife before they get there. And then he's like, I need to see the machine just, just to try to get away from it. And she's just like, no, we are going home and we're doing this. And he's like, Goldie, I am the man of the family. I am the head of the house. And I want to see Mortel's new machine right now. And he literally opens the door, looks in and goes, I've seen it. Now let's go home. <laughs> you I'm might have so actually like... convinced me, Andy, to, to give it another watch. It's so sharp with those moments of amusement that just like, it, even though there's a lot of depressing aspects in it and a lot of like really like deep introspection on like what it means to be in an ever-changing world, that the comedy and Topol's bombastic elements just keep you going throughout it and keep you chuckling. There was an announcement back in 2020 that a remake uh, from MGM was underway with Thomas Kelly known for his work on Hamilton and Grease Live directing, but that seems to have gone very, very quiet. And uh, to be honest, I don't think it's one of those films that needs to be 
remade. I think uh, the casting of Topol was just genius. Mm. And a man who lived with the role, despite doing other stuff, yes, he was in Flash Gordon as Dr. Zarkov, we've not forgotten, but it will always be remembered mm. for, for that song and that role. So Andy, if you want to watch Fiddler on the Roof, where can you find it? It uh, has to be a rental at the moment or a purchase. Uh, you can find it on home media to buy or stream. It's only about £2.50 to rent on Amazon at the moment. So it's it's worth chipping that £2.50 and treating yourself to... And it's a three-hour film. Yeah, but it didn't feel like three hours. Watch it. I, I popped this on after I got home from a night shift and it was only as it started, I was like, oh, three hours, but it flew by because I just fell in love with it again i just want to quickly mention as well paul michael glazer went on to play topol's role of tevye for the last decade in the touring production in the uk so if they do do a remake why not cast paul michael glazer perfect casting give it a shot if you've never seen it it's long but it's still quite relevant today because with it being set in a ukraine under threat from a crazy russian decrees and lives being changed as tradition battles the modern modern world it doesn't take much to see how it can still be relevant we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews, uh, a film that Andy and I have both seen, which is becoming less of a rarity or so it seems at the moment. Before we talk about that one, Andy's gonna talk about this one. The biggest release of this week, it's doing great business worldwide, and that is the Super Mario Brothers movie. My army! Soon we will destroy the Mushroom Kingdom! <laughs> Nervous? I fear nothing. You want to do this? It is on like Donkey Kong! Oh! Raccoon suit! Really? Not at all! Buckle up! Here we go! <laughs> Only in theaters April 5th. Coming from Illumination and the directors of Teen Titans go to the movies, Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelinek, Nintendo's popular mascot is brought to vivid animated life for a wide range of audiences who've grown up with the games over the decades. However, the devotion to the games and the fans who embrace them might actually make it hard for non-gamer savvy general audiences to embrace it. Mario and Luigi, voiced by Chris Pratt and Charlie Day, are a pair of Brooklyn plumbers who are struggling to make a business. However, whilst trying to help out when a flooding occurs, the pair stumble on a hidden sub-level of the city's sewer system, wherein a load of mysterious pipes are contained. Accidentally stumbling into one large pipe, the pair are whisked away through a portal and become separated in the strange magical world they land in. This land is under threat from Bowser, voiced by Jack Black, the king of the Coopers, who is seeking to kidnap Princess Peach, Anya Taylor-Joy, to pressure her into marrying him. Mario seeks to rescue Luigi and teams up with Peach and a Mushroom Kingdom resident, Toad, voiced by Keegan-Michael Key, becoming drawn into the escalating conflict that threatens all the realms. I had a lot of fun with this film, purely because I got all the references to the video game histories of the characters, locations and moments. But all the while, at the back of my mind, I was greatly aware that without that prior knowledge of the franchise, this was an absolute mess. There is little to no introduction to characters as they drop into moments. Right from the start, we're already expected to know who they all are. Which, whilst with Bowser, that's kind of fine. After all, we simply need to know he's the bad guy leading an army. But when Peach just kind of appears and within minutes is helping Mario train to be a warrior for no apparent reason, it all starts to feel a little too forced. Scenes are set up purely so that fans can laugh at representations of their favourite moments in the games, be it platform adventure, Mario versus Donkey Kong, or shoehorning in kart racing. Nothing flows. With all the interconnecting moments simply feeling like a small breather, 
whilst the console loads up the next level. This is a video game movie, and it certainly does the franchise justice for the fans. It leans so heavily into the lore and references that nary a moment goes by that I didn't chuckle at another nod or reference. But like I said, all the while I was aware that without prior knowledge of the games that it heavily draws from, I'd have struggled to keep up or indeed care for any of the chaos which was going on. Unlike the Sonic movie, which smartly introduced that character for a general audience before going full on video game for the second film, Mario expects you to already be a fan. Still, the fan base is huge and it covers a wide age range, so young and old who've grown up with Nintendo have got a lot to enjoy here. The voice cast are great, the humour lands well, and the animation fits the brand perfectly. But just be aware that if you haven't played the games at all, you're going to likely struggle to connect with any of it. When you declined my invite to come along to watch this, I think you made the right decision because I think you would have hated every second of this film for all the reasons that I've mentioned in the review. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I was going to come and, and the child definitely, definitely wanted to see it. And it was just, it was a time issue rather than me not wanting to. But I, I'm, I'm not drawn. I'm not a huge fan of the game. I've played it once or twice. So I, I'm not going to get a lot of the in-jokes. Saying that, it didn't matter about me not getting the in-jokes for Dungeons & Dragons. But I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'd, I'm, I'm that drawn. If it appears on streaming in the next couple of years, then I'll, that's when I'll get to see it. I mean, the difference between Dungeons & Dragons and this is Dungeons & Dragons, the in-jokes were in-jokes. It had a plot that didn't need them. This film's plot is the in-jokes. Right. So let's talk about something that we've both seen. A film from the trailer that you and I basically put this on the top of our list. <laughs> uh, for a film that I'm assuming is not going to do much in the way of business in the UK. And that's Ben Affleck's Air. I'm going to build a shoe line around one guy. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. I've never had a feeling like this for a rookie who's never set foot on an NBA court. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford him. There's nothing cool about Nike. Are you trying to ruin your career? I believe in you. A shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Air. So everything that they've sold this movie on is it's been a sports movie. And for you and I, that would have normally have been a bit of a turnoff. But the film's set in 1984. Sports shoot giants Converse and Adidas are dominating the world of basketball. Upstart company Nike is struggling to make an impact. That is until executive Sonny Vaccaro, played with all the charm that Matt Damon can bring to the screen, has an idea. Rather than spend the budget across three different players, let's just use that budget for one up-and-coming court star, Michael Jordan. Andy, you and I loved this film, didn't we? Yes. Like you say, as soon as we saw the trailer, we put this at the top of our list because that trailer just sold an almost Sorkin-esque kind yeah, of interplay nice with characters with a, with a Moneyball kind of feel to it. Looking at a sports drama, but without where the sport isn't the important thing, it's what's going on behind the scenes. And this is an example of where the trailer sells the film exactly as it is because this film lived up to that trailer. That trailer which grabbed our attention from our very first watching and made us go, wow, we need to see this. And it didn't feel like one hour's 50 of film. No, it certainly didn't because Ben Affleck pulls off a, a, a pretty difficult task and that's making you interested in a film 
about a pair of basketball shoes that came into existence. So it's an origin story for the Air Jordan range. But what he does is he makes it gripping. He makes it very, very human. It pulses with energy all the way through. And it has that fantastic, almost machine gun style dialogue and delivery that keeps you absolutely enthralled all the way through. Not even to mention how great Matt Damon is in this. And it's good to see Affleck and, and Damon working together. They both produced this film uh, as well as uh, starring in it because Affleck appears as Phil Knight, who he seems to be having so much fun. Phil Knight uh, is the Nike co-founder who's, uh, shall we say, slightly eccentric. Uh, yes. always spouting Buddhist aphorisms all the way through. It's, it's just a lot of fun. Great cast. I think Jason Bateman is just always solid at everything he does. He does have a tendency to play Jason Bateman all the time. <laughs> but why not? Because he does it so darn well. Great to see Chris Tucker back in his first film for yeah. about seven years as a, of course, a fast-talking marketing executive. And Viola Davis as Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, whom Vaccaro needs to woo if he's going to fulfill his dream about making this this one-off deal of a lifetime for Michael Jordan. Yeah, Viola Davis, for me, just showed how she can turn any role into a force of nature, an absolute force of nature. And for me, it, it's Davis and Damon who are the true stars in this yeah. film. They're the true driving force. The rest of the support cast are all great, but they're there to serve the story, whereas these two are the central characters. Matthew Mayer, uh, Chris Messina, really good additions to the cast. Affleck doesn't really do a lot in the role on the film, but what he is doing is he's directing. Yes. And he's directing with such a style, such a coolness. He captures the essence of the 80s, not only visually, but musically. All the music for, from it's this. A great soundtrack album. It throws you into the air and just makes you go, you know what? I'm in love with this whole era. I want to go back and live the 80s again, just to live it in that music era again. It looks and it sounds perfectly fitting to the era that it's set in. I did find some amusement in the way that they, they worked their hardest to not show you the actor playing Michael Jordan. I was going to bring that up because it's, it's an, actually it's a it's an interesting choice, a directorial and story choice, because I've, I've read the original script in which Jordan features all the way through this, but he makes Jordan in this almost a, an inconsequential presence to the film. We don't really see him. We, we see the back of his head. Uh, we see him shot in the corner of frame. We never see him fully. And Affleck explained this by going, who could play Michael Jordan? Because Michael Jordan mm. is just such a dominating presence that he felt as once Jordan was in the film, it would take away from that particular yeah. story. So it's an interesting, I've seen some critiquing about that, but I, it didn't have a negative effect for me on, on the storytelling. I thought it was an interesting idea not to make him the presence and just make him, I guess, the, the, the soul of the film. The Jordan name was important to the film, but Michael Jordan himself wasn't important to this story. And it, it kind of fits that you don't focus on Michael Jordan. You focus on the people around him a lot more. His mother, who was, she, she was very key in all of his career. She was very key in everything that he strived to be. She'd supported him and she'd like pushed for him to be put into these positions. So she was the important character. He was just the superstar on the basketball court. They had to get Michael Jordan's blessing to make this film, uh, which thankfully he did. 
it's a great telling of like you know how nike turned around the declining business by doing something completely unexpected and managing to tag a huge name and spend all their money to get behind them and they changed the way that some of the uh, industry worked from that point onwards yeah. because this was the start of celebrities endorsing products and getting a percentage cut of those products michael jordan's made a lot of his money off the sales of the air jordans as a result so as it says point three of nike's famous list of 10 corporate principles break the rules head over see air you'll have a lot of fun and finally andy your review for operation fortune ruse de guerre you said it was clear i said the front was clear ah front back right wrong shall we Orson Fortune. That is a sexy name. Cover's blown. You stopped Danny Francesco. You stopped Greg Simmons. You let me worry about that. Originally due out over a year ago, Guy Ritchie's latest film was pulled from cinema release before finally landing a streaming release via Amazon. This is a Jason Statham vehicle from Guy Ritchie, and it, it plays on the style and tropes of a variety of spy action adventures to present a fun, if not stunning, entry into this director's catalogue. Statham plays Orson Fortune, a spy who must retrieve a high-tech AI device which is in the possession of an arms dealer named Greg Simmons, played by Hugh Grant, before it's sold on the black market. Heading up the operation is Nathan Jasmine, played by Carrie Elwes, and the team is rounded off with tech wizard agents Sarah Fidel, Orby Plaza, and J.J. Davis, Bugsy Malone. The team decide that the approach they need to take is to recruit Greg's favourite actor, Danny Francesco, played by Josh Hartnett, to get them close to the dealer. However, it appears another team from another agency is also after the device, placing challenges in the way for the spies. This is a fun romp. It lifts from so many other films, but with that slickness and sharp wit that Richie is famous for. Statham oozes charisma throughout, pretty much playing the standard archetype that the action star is known so well for. And around him, the gang all offer some delightful plays on other template characters. Hartnett is a lot of fun, reminding us of how he was once poised to be a star player way back in the past. And Aubrey Plaza gets to really shine in a role sharply different to that which she is usually fit to. But Hugh Grant is the absolute steal in the film, as the billionaire arms dealer Greg Simmons. A role he is relishing as part of his current renaissance. He's charming, he's smarmy, he's sometimes arrogant, he's egotistical, and he's an absolute scene-stealing delight throughout. The action is fun, it's well shot, it's sometimes inventive, as you'd expect from Richie, who always adds some flair to proceedings. But whilst it never feels slow or wasted, it does suffer from being entirely familiar and being outshone by a wealth of recent years of output of this genre. Overall, it's a good way to waste a couple of hours, but nothing more. And those are the reviews. What do we have coming up over the next week, Andy? So at cinemas, if you're a fan of Makato Shinake's Your Name, which was a marvellous anime from about five years ago, Suzumi, his latest output, lands at cinemas this weekend. Um, Assassin Club also lands at cinemas. Raging Bull, restored 4K version, is on limited cinema Ooh, across the that. UK. And we're both going to talk about it next week, no doubt, hopefully. Renfield, we've been looking forward to this one. Nicholas Cage and Nicholas Holt in a comedy modern day telling of the Dracula relationship with his servant Renfield. On Now TV and Sky, DC League of Super Pets lands. 
Beast, which I didn't get a chance to watch last year, so I'll be checking that out. And Hunt also lands this week on Now TV and Sky. On Netflix, we're both going to suggest this one to you. Nobody. Yep. Netflix has nobody this week. Get it watched. Over on Amazon, The Sun lands this week and Greek Salad lands this week. Not a bad week of films. There's a few in there that I've not had a chance to see that I want to see, Beast and The Sun in particular. So I'll probably bring both of them to the show next week. And that, folks, that's about it for this week's film file. But we do this every week, and you should know, because we always do it right at the end, that it's our play out with our neat things. And I still think we need a bit of neat things introductionary music. Andy, tell us something that you've enjoyed, so much so that you want to tell everybody about it. Okay, so those who listen to the podcast version of the show and who particularly stick around for the end credits, post-credits, outtakes, will have heard last week and not known what we were talking about. Me talking about how I'm going to bring something to the <laughs> neat thing this week, just to spite Lee. Now, to give you context on that, that was in response to talking about things that were landing on streaming this week. And it turns out that when I watched this thing, with the expectation of... Eh, I'm probably not going to like this. And by the end of it, I knew I was definitely bringing it as my neat thing. And that is Greece Rise of the Pink Ladies, which landed on Paramount Plus this week. It turns out that what I said as a joke last week is genuinely true. This is a neat thing. Now, I, I mentioned earlier on when we were talking about musicals that I love Greece. I am a huge fan of Greece. I didn't like Greece too. I hated it. And I expected Rise of the Pink Ladies to have a Grease 2 kind of vibe. It's like you don't yeah, need that's to do what a I would have expected to Grease. It's set four years prior to the first Grease film. And it charts the start of the Pink Ladies, who are a group of outcasts who bond together to stand against the popular clique. It covers, as you'd expect from a Grease film, various social issues. In this case, it's covering, because it's got a series to play with, they could tackle quite a few. So there's racism getting covered, there's sexual harassment, there's slut shaming, there's casual bullying, gender identity. Greece has always kind of been more adults than people see it on the surface. Surface level, people go, hey, it's a really cool 50s bop film. On the deeper level, there's a lot of issues that get tackled, unwanted pregnancies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The series handles these topics well, but it's Greece, so the music has to live up to it. And safe to say that within the first three songs, I found my toes were tapping and it, they were filled with that same kind of Grease vibe and energy and like the choreography. And it's the cast, Marissa de Villa, Ari Nota Tosomo, Tricia Fukuhara, Jackie Hoffman, who's playing Principal McGee, one of the characters who you recognize from the original film. Jackie Hoffman is a great, great stand-in for that role. Cheyenne Isabel Wells, all the core cast are really good in their roles. There's even small cameos of a couple of characters from the original film in the first episode there's a young Rizzo and Frenchie obviously played by new younger actors thrown in there to basically go this is four years before they will be going to senior school so these are the characters and you can start to see them getting defined I hope we get to see more of them through it but at the moment the core cast alone are enough to keep me engaged in this sat and watched it with the wife I knew she'd enjoy it I didn't expect me to enjoy it as much as I did and I, I cannot wait for the next episode to land Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies, don't be put off. If you're a fan of either Grease 1 or Grease 2, and there are some Grease 2 fans out there. Yeah, my missus. My missus loves Grease 2. Who could figure? Yeah, I think you'll find a lot to enjoy if you've got some love for any of the Grease stuff because it, it plays really well and fits nicely alongside them. Uh, so, Andy, you're telling me that's the one that I want. <laughs> it is the one you want. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Mine's neat thing for this week couldn't be any more 
different. Couldn't be the opposite end of the scale. Uh, I've had a week off and I thought I was going to do something. I had so much writing to do on this special secret project that I'm working on uh, that I can't tell you about, can't even tell Andy about yet. But I have been playing video games, which is the every great writer's fallback <laughs> when you can't think <laughs> what to write. You play video games. And I've played... Now, I played it before, played it on the PS3, but I'm playing the PS4 version of Alien Isolation. Andy, have you ever played it? I have, yes. I've I've played it on PS4 version, and I've also got it on PC, and I've never completed it because I always get I also always get too scared. <laughs> it is incredibly scary. So right from the get-go, the art direction and the sound design absolutely nails the vibe of Ridley Scott's uh, 1979 classic. From the DOS-based futuristic computers and their scanline CRT monitors to the soundtrack, which is absolutely fear-enhancing, to the fact that uh, all the set design looked like it comes from that period of Alien. This is a survival horror game, and it, it takes its time to set up, just like Alien did to bring the Alien in. But once it does show up, boy, there's this sense of dread and fear that runs throughout the game. You play the daughter of Sigourney Weaver's Ripley. You're playing Amanda Ripley. So it even fits into the chronology as this takes place before Aliens. Once the Xenomorph uh, appears in the game and is stalking you through dark and creepy uh, corridors of the space station, then that's when the game hits its stride. And it's an absolutely stressful game to play. Proper phrase attention. It is. And one of the key aspects of this game is the AI. And the AI will bring the alien into your life in different ways than you expected. So most video games, you know if you turn that corner, then conflict's going to happen. You turn the corner and there's an alien there and gets you. Next time when you, uh, when you reboot, it's not there. It could be anywhere. And the slightest sound or the slightest <laughs> uh, light source or if you end up in the sight of, of this serial murdering life form, will will change the way that he's going to get you. It's it's an awesome game. I'm nearly, nearly finished. In fact, so much so that I, I woke up at stupid o'clock this morning, couldn't go back to sleep, and I'm on the sort of the last end of it, and I played it from sort of seven o'clock onwards, just before we started <laughs> recording this show. You spend a lot of time in that game hiding in lockers. Yeah. Have you have you been playing it with the um, extra enhanced controller aspects? Oh no, I haven't. Using the motion thing to look around oh, corners. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And having the microphone setting so that your if you make any noise, it will alert. I hope not. The Zeno. Oh, that's just made me even more uh, scared. Because that that makes you if you have that full settings on, when you're hiding in a locker, you are genuinely holding your breath as it's going past the locker because. All you need to do is sniff and it will turn and come towards the locker and that's it. You are having a heart attack. Oh my goodness. I don't a, think I have. It's a good way of using the extra elements of the control mechanism for the PlayStation 4 and 5. If this would have been in a parallel universe, a great second Alien movie. Uh, the, the, have you got the DLC as well, which uh, ties into Alien? No, but I plan to. I plan to. Well worth picking up. Well worth picking up. And that's our neat things for this week. And that's it for this week. Uh, we are done. And we are back again next week. Andy, any big plans for this week? Not a lot. We're still on the 
kids' holidays at work, so it's it's just busy, 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 and uh, me being very tired and not having time to chill out at home because I can't get on my TV because everyone's using oh, it. So uh, you might be I'll, popping around in a bit I'll, then. <laughs> I'll probably dip onto Sackboy, which landed on PlayStation Plus last week. So I do like a good bit, a little bit planet style things, and the Sackboy games quite fun. Yeah, I've got I've got the house to myself, so I'm doing some catching up with movies that I've missed. As I said, I caught up with X last week, caught up with Creed Two, uh, a little movie called Metal Lords, which was which was quite good fun. Caught up with that. Oh yeah, I remember, I remember quite quite liking it when I reviewed it. Andy, I'll see you next week. But before we go, the good book can wait. It's time for Sabbath. <laughs> next week, but before that, of course, before that, we've just done it. <laughs> <laughs> we've just gone back in time but before Hi, that I'm Lee Ford before next week we're going to do something else <laughs> bye we're over that's the shortest show we've ever done yeah uh, and I'd, I'm really I'll try that without as many that was my Star Wars speak <laughs> stupid monkey down Caesar down <laughs> Take a step to the left. That's our music. It's just a jump the to the left. And, then and to the right. Put your hands on your head. hips. <laughs> you and head into the world inside. of DC. <laughs> Cushion over your face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or over their face if you're that kind of couple. Um... <laughs> is he? <laughs> yes. Is he? I'd, I didn't yeah. read my notes. Yes, he is. I just read the headline. Um... I'll go, yes. I'll come back with that. Uh, Yes. Which is, okay, 10 or so years ago, but... About 20 years yeah, ago. Still, actually, but... <laughs> still, I'll say that again. Um, so, which is about 20 or... If I were a rich man... All day long I diddle-diddle-do If I was a wealthy man I um, wouldn't have to work hard. Da-da-da. <laughs>